I want to shift our message today, and I'm not going to be in Hebrews. I couldn't just kind of get out of my mind that the Gideons were coming, and I said, I just want to really talk about the Bible this morning again. That's what they, they do. Their, their ministry is getting Scripture everywhere so people can have copies of God's Word. And it hit me that I just wonder if we perhaps don't appreciate having a personal copy of God's Word in our language. If you, if you think about that, at my home, just my house, okay, and you can say, well, you're a preacher, so that, that happens, but I bet some of you are still similar to what I'm about to share. Um, in my office, there's probably six or seven, maybe ten Bibles, study Bibles, regular Bibles. At my house, there's probably five or six more. That's not counting what's on my computer. I bet you I have 40, 50 or so editions of the Bible, let's call it. And that's just me. You probably have several. The point is you have access to God's Word anywhere you want to get it here in America and in your language. And I'm afraid it's supply and demand. The more supply you have, the price goes down. It's not as much. But if, if the supply goes away, all of a sudden it's worth a lot. I've heard stories that in China and places, the Chinese people that are Christians there in the underground churches will often memorize scripture because they can't take it home. They don't have copies of it in their language. And even when they do, it's, it's just a few copies. And a, a church congregation, a body of believers may have to share one copy of the Bible. So they'll have to take turns reading it and memorizing it. And then I've, I've heard that if they get arrested and thrown in jail, their Bibles are taken away. So to sort of lock it in, they memorize it. And that convicted me because I thought, I don't focus on memorizing Scripture a lot, if I'm honest with you. And I thought, why is that? Because I'm so, honestly, inundated with the Bible. You are too. You may not realize it. So if you picture a supply and demand graph, the supply of Bible for us is way high. Well, that means usually the appreciation and the value of it's way low because it's just common. But in other parts of the world, their value for the Bible is super high. Because they know what it is and they know that many of them can't get it. So I want to take our attention this morning to Psalm chapter 19. Let's just talk about how we could possibly just have a greater appreciation for what the Bible really is. Why God gave us his word in, in written form. What I really hope to convey to you this morning is have an appreciation of it. But I want you to really see the Bible as a privilege. It's a privilege to have it. The work of the Gideons putting these things out there for people. I mean, they're, they're working on getting these in foreign countries as well. And that got me to thinking, and I found some information from Wycliffe. Uh, Wycliffe is a, a big worldwide Bible translation ministry. That, that's basically all they do is they work on projects around the world to get the Bible in, in people's native languages. The data I found is from earlier this year. They say there's an estimated 7,394 languages in the world. 736 of them, that's 10%, only 10% of them have a full completed copy of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, in their language. So that's why I say we're inundated with it and don't think about it. But only 10% of languages can have God's Word that they can go read for themselves in their own language. The New Testament's a little bit better. What, they, what these translators typically do, and it kind of makes sense, 
as Nathan started, he came to proclaim to us the good news of Jesus. Well, we want all of the Bible, yes. But what they typically do is start with the New Testament, because that's typically, you know, that's, that's kind of where Christ is. And they'll say, well, we'll start with the New and then get them the Old. So there's more of the New Testament out there. They say that um, 1,658, that's roughly 22.4%, have a full completed copy of the New Testament in their own language. So think about that. Most people around the world are having to uh, either learn another language and read the Bible in that or just wait until they have a copy of Scripture in their own. Or And, you know, there's a lot of work that's been done. There was a lot of good when I read this. They've, they've had huge advancements in, in Bible translation, so there's a lot to praise God for. But they say that though most people have portions of the Bible... Because these teams will work on it, so they'll work on John, and then they get John done, and they give it out to the locals, and it gets spread. And that's great. They have John, for example, but you and I, have we have all 66. It's just a privilege is what I'm trying to get us to see this morning. A lot of painstaking work goes into that. Remember, it wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. There was people way down the line back in our own history that had to translate it as well, and now we stand on their shoulders today. So a lot of good there, but there's just a lot left to be done. And so you have the work of the Gideons and, and Wycliffe and these other companies, and, or excuse me, I should say ministries that are out there. They're trying to get the scripture out there to everybody. Well, why is that? Again, because of what it is. So let's look at Psalm 19. And King David wrote this as a, it's basically a poem. It's a very beautiful poem. And what he basically does here is he says, let me just look at all the different aspects of God's word and talk about how wonderful it is and what it does for someone. And I want us to walk away here this morning just seeing, let's have an appreciation for the Bible and see it as a privilege. It's not, it's not a right. It's not uh, something that we're guaranteed. It's a privilege. So I, I hope we can value it a little bit more as we leave here today. In Psalm 19, I'm only going to look at 7 through 14. Let me just quickly tell you about the whole psalm. It's kind of a poem written by David, as I said, and it kind of splits into two parts real easily. The first six verses is where David basically says, let me tell you about the glory of God as seen through what he's made all through creation. He says things like the heavens declare the glory of God. It's as if God made the space and the space functions like a tent for the sun. That's how awesomely powerful and majestic God is, is that he made a tent for the sun. So David looks at all the stuff out there that God made and says, this all testifies to the glory of God. Then in verse 7, he shifts and says, now let me tell you about the glory of God as seen through his written word, the spoken word of God that has been written down for his people to have and to know him and to enjoy him through the written word. So that's part we'll just focus on here this morning. He gives six different I'll call them aspects. You could call them synonyms. He's all saying the Bible. It's all about the Bible, but he's going to say there's six different aspects of the Bible that he's going to kind of focus on, little nuances to see about the Scripture. And then he'll give six attributes. Here's a little nuance to the Bible, and here's what it does for a person. And then he'll end with, um, or excuse me, that's its attribute, and then he'll end with what it does for a person, the accomplishment, the payoff, if you will, for someone who will receive the Bible and listen to the scriptures. I thought of a diamond, if you've ever looked at a diamond up close. Diamonds are not flat, are they? 
They're not two-dimensional. They're not one-dimensional. Diamonds are multi-dimensional. And the point is, if you look at a diamond over here, it, it shines and it looks beautiful. And then you can look at it from this angle and this angle. You can look at a diamond from any angle and it's going to shine and have beauty. Meaning you don't just look at it from the north and only from looking at it from the north it, ha it has beauty. And from the south it doesn't show anything. No, diamonds show 360 degrees all over. Uh, that's kind of what David's doing here, saying, hey, let's just talk about the Bible, but it's like a diamond, and we're going to look at it from this side, and then this side, and this side. There's different aspects, but he says, any way you look at it, it's just beautiful to see God speak through His Word, His glory come out through His Scriptures. So, the Bible is God's Word. Let's look at these different aspects and see what it does for a person who values the Scriptures. And I just want us to appreciate it and see it as a privilege this morning. And if you would, I'd ask you to join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. And I'm just going to read verse 7 to start us off. It says in Psalm 19:7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Let me pray for a moment. Father, thank you for Nathan and Bob and the work of the Gideons. Just getting scriptures out here and there and everywhere. I pray that you bless them personally. Lord, I know they have other things in life that they do. They have career, they have families. So would you bless them just for taking of their, their time to do this ministry. Bless the efforts of the Gideons here locally and everywhere else, Lord. Bless the efforts of Wycliffe and Tyndale and other groups I know and more that I don't know that I know are just trying to get your written word out there to every language so people can see your glory through the word. And I'd ask that you help us this morning through Psalm 19 get a glimpse of what David saw when he was thinking about your written word and how beautiful it was to him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Let's start with looking at the different aspects and the accomplishments of the Bible. So there's different little attributes to it, and each one sort of gives an accomplishment or a payoff, if you will. And this will be found here in the first few verses, verses 7 through 9. And I read the first one here. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So there's the first one. And he says, the law, of God, the law of God is perfect. What does it do? Revives the soul. That's how everyone is going to work. He's going to say, here's what it is, and here's what it does. So here's a different aspect of the Bible. He calls it the law of God. So that's our first aspect. What does it do? It revives the soul. This word law, you've probably heard it, Torah, the Hebrew word for Torah. It didn't literally mean law like a speed limit law, legal laws. It meant all of God's teachings and instructions for life. To the Jews, the Torah, again, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was everything. It's how to live life. How to live life before your God. So David says here, when I think about God's written word, it's the law. It's all of God's instructions given to his people. And he called it perfect that word perfect is most often used in the Hebrew Old Testament to describe the kind of animal sacrifice that God would receive for worship. They could not bring un or excuse me, they couldn't bring blemished animals. Spots, bruises, birth defects, broken bones. God says, "You bring me your best to sacrifice to me for worship." And he would use a word like this here for perfect, unblemished, without spot, without anything wrong in it. So David here says, when I think about the Bible, I see it as all of God's instructions to his people, and it is perfect. It has nothing wrong with it. 
And not, not morally, it means complete. Like it's not lacking anything. There's nothing that God left out of the Scriptures that is necessary for us to have. Whatever God wanted us to know, He gave it. It's complete. It's full. It's perfect. But then David says, what does it do? It revives the soul. My translation says revive. Some say restore. I like the King James. It says converting the soul. It's this idea of it's going that way and now it's turned that way back the other way around. The soul is the, the inward self, the spiritual part of a person. And I think David is saying, hey, it, there's a couple of ways it does this. The first way is it, it requires God's word to breathe life into a lost dead sinner. Paul says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing. You have to hear. And then he says you hear the word of Christ. So God's word is spoken and it brings life when there was deadness. It, it converts the soul. What about for the, the Christian? It still restores their soul too. You, you and I live life and get down and things happen. And David says, go to God's word, live according to his instruction. And it's like it renews your soul from within. Gives you that, that new vigor, new fulfillment, new purpose to live according to God's law, his instruction. Why is it that um, God's word does this? David is thinking about this. And he says, well, the God's word is like that unblemished, perfect, sacrificial lamb being offered up. It has no sin, no defect. And if someone will take it in and listen to it, receive its instruction, it leads them to live on the right path before God. It leads to them being forgiven of their sins because they're going to follow it and they're going to repent of sins and call out to Christ. And then it's going to lead to us living spiritually restored lives for God. So, to appreciate the Bible is to appreciate hearing from God. That means you're, when you read the Bible, you're coming to God saying, I want to hear your divine instructions. Teach me, Lord, how to live. Is what really where it starts, as David's saying. So the Bible gives us God's instructions, His teachings. But we need to appreciate it that way. The second thing he calls it is the testimony of God. He says the testimony of God is sure. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. You'll find that in the rest of the verse here. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Again, this is all about the Bible. He's now just shifted to a different little aspect of it. And he calls it the testimony of the Lord, the testimony of God. Testimony means when someone gives a witness, like you've testimony in the court of law, you're familiar with that. That's kind of the idea behind this word here too. It's as if David says, when I think about the Bible, God's written word, it's as if God has said, this is my testimony given to humanity. My declaration of all the things that I need to share with them, it's, it's a testimony as if God gave it under oath to people. God says it's sure. That means it's trustworthy. It's permanent. It's reliable. So you've seen in courtroom shows or scenes, people raise their hand, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help me. God, and they give their testimony in a court of law. And then we have this law called perjury. If a person lies while giving a testimony, then they can get in trouble. Kind of picture, if you will, it's as if God says, I'm giving my testimony, and out came the Scriptures. This is God's testimony. And it's as if, it's as if God raised His right hand to us and said, I swear that every word in here is true, full, and complete, and it'll never fail. There's nothing wrong with it. There's, there's no lies. There's no defect. It's sure. It's trustworthy. David said, well, then that means if a person will appreciate the Bible as God's testimony to us. 
and believe that it's reliable and trustworthy and will never fail, then here's what it does for them. It will make wise the simple. The simple person is what we would probably call the naive, not stupid. It just means inexperienced. They haven't lived life long enough to have that sagely wisdom of someone who's lived for 80, 90 years. They're young, they're inexperienced, they're immature. David says, well, they can beat the learning curve, so to speak, by listening to God's testimonies. It'll make them wise. They'll know what to do. They'll know how to live. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That's this idea David was saying by it's sure. God's testimonies don't falter. They don't, they're here and gone. No, they're sure. They're firm. Just like God has fixed it in the heavens. So God's word then will give wisdom to someone if they'll listen to it. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Notice Psalm 119.98 says this, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. And then notice what else it says in verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Doesn't matter your age, someone could say, I just don't know enough about life, I'm, I'm too inexperienced. But here, if we take this at face value, Psalm says to us, then get in God's word. And it will make you wiser than the oldest person you know. It will make you wiser than the best teacher you've ever had. Because you're listening to God's own mind. Then, David says, the next thing God's word is, is he calls it precepts. And this is uh, verse 8, let's look here. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So he calls it the precepts of God are right, and what does it do? It rejoices the heart. Again, still talking about the Bible, just different words for it now. So another aspect he says is he calls it precepts. These are basically instructions that God has handed down to us for how to live life. The, the do's and the don'ts, so to speak. This is what you should do. This is how you live life. Uh, ethical living, ethical standards that God has laid down. Um, it's the orders that God has given. He, he says these are right. That word right in Hebrew, it's interesting that he used it here because that word could, really was used to talk about a path that you're walking on and it was straight and flat and smooth. The implication, he's being, being poetic again. I think he's using that word to say this. If you're on a curvy road with holes and bumps you're more likely to trip and get hurt but if you follow god's commandments his precepts how to live life it's like your path in front of you in life is straightened out it's smoothed out you're able to walk on it with far far less likely chance to fall into sin and to be hurt and messed up spiritually he says no it makes the path before the person right and smooth what does it do it rejoices the heart he says this is simply saying it makes the person joyful and happy from the inside the word heart isn't the organ it's the the inner self of a person the heart in hebrew meant the non-physical part of you so david says well god's word if it's taken in and you listen to its precepts meaning you're literally following the do's and the don'ts its instructions what does it do you'll from the inside out sort of have this joy and fulfillment and i thought about that i thought why is that the case though like logically why is it that way i think it's actually very simple because if a person is following God's word, they're listening and obeying it, then that means they're following God's plan for living your daily life. 
if you're following God's plan and doing the things God said to do, you are far more likely to avoid troubles. You're far more likely to avoid problems. I, I don't mean troubles like bad situations. We all know Christians, even living faithfully, will have troubles. Jesus said that. I mean, though, the self-inflicted ones. Falling into a sin, falling into a bad decision, because we just didn't listen to God and didn't do it God's way. And David says, if you'll follow God's precepts and do it His way, then you typically will have a life marked with this inner joy and peace. Why? Because you're not causing your own problems in life. You're following it God's way. So it leads to this sense of less guilt and shame because we know that we're pleasing God with our daily lives. So David says God's word is always correct. It leads one on a straight path in life, which leads to a more happy and glad heart, free of guilt and shame from sin. The next thing he calls it in verse 8, he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So now he calls it a commandment. The Bible gives God's commandments. They are pure. And what do they do? They enlighten the eyes. Commandment means specific rules. These are the this has more of the precepts or rules too. Like again, like these are all different aspects. So you're going to see one kind of talks about the other. Precepts is when God says, "Do this with your life." Commandment adds a little more of that authoritative tone. It's like that commanding general in the army saying, "Okay, soldier, you're going to go do this now." So the Bible contains God's commandments, His authoritative instructions for living. David says they're not burdensome, they're not a problem. No, he calls them pure. They're clean. They're free from any guilt or fault or sin. You could think of um, the military. I've, I've never served. I've, I used to want to, so I studied a lot about the military. But as I understand it, you, know, you have a chain of command. you got the superior officer up top, and they're giving the orders, and the soldiers down below are supposed to follow those orders. There are those rare occasions when a superior officer could give an unethical order. And it is actually the soldier's duty to respectfully say we can't follow these orders because they're actually unethical and they violate the very core of the Constitution. I take that and David is sort of saying you'll never, ever have to worry about that with God as your sort of commanding general telling you what to do. He'll never give you an unethical, illogical command or order to follow. And David says when I think about the Bible, it contains God's commands, his orders. Let's call them marching orders. David says, if I follow them, I can count on them. They're pure. Never have anything wrong in them. And what they do, he says, they enlighten the eyes. An example of this is Psalm 119, 105. You probably know this by heart. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's what David is saying here. To follow God's commands is like lighting that dark path in front of you so you see exactly where to step next. Would say it the opposite way, to not follow God's commands is to wander off in the darkness with no light. You have no clue where you're going to end up, what's going to happen. But David says, you can count on it to follow God's commands. will guide your path. It's a pure thing to follow God's commands. Next, verse 9, he says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the next aspect he says about God's word, he calls it fear of the Lord. So fear of God is clean. What does it do? endures forever. This is interesting phrase, fear of the Lord, because it almost sounds like he's not talking about the Bible now. He's talking about something a person would do. They would fear God. But let's think about this for a second. 
First of all, this word fear is not how I have a fear of spiders. I'm afraid of them. I don't like them. Uh, snakes, depends on the snake. I don't like to be around them, but there's this fear of being afraid of something. That is not what this Hebrew word fear means here. It doesn't mean like run away, I'm scared. The word fear here that the Hebrews often use to talk about fear of the Lord wasn't I'm afraid of God, so I'll go run and hide. No, it meant this reverence and respect because of the position that God has over us. So there's this type of fear in the sense of I really deeply respect who God is and who I'm not. Well, I'm not God and he is. So if God says do something, then it's my job to do it. Not say, well, God, let's negotiate. Or, no, that's showing a lack of the fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord would say, I know who God is. I know what God can do. So I'm going to do what God says to do. I'm going to live the way God says to live. It's this deep respect and reverence. What David mentions this here for is this reason, I think. Anytime the Old Testament usually talks about the fear of the Lord, it's often in the negative. God will say, you've lost the fear of the Lord. And what that means is they've stopped obeying him. To lose the fear of the Lord is to lose respect for the Lord. It means to just simply ignore what God says to do. David says, if one will appreciate the Bible, what it will produce within them is an appropriate holy fear for the Lord. We're reading in Scripture, we just finished in Hebrews a section, and it says God is a consuming fire. See, there's an aspect of God, he's love. There's another aspect to God that Hebrews and other places say he's a judge and he's a consuming fire fire that will burn sin and judge it so we have to have both with god some people focus just on the love you have to have both he's love and justice he's holy so i think david is saying there is this idea that god loves me and yet but god is a just holy righteous god that will judge all sin so i owe it to him to obey him that's that type of fear of the lord if you're reading scripture and you appreciate it it will produce in us that type of fear. Not afraid fear, but respect for who he is. David calls that clean. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, he would say. That, that, that's a good, clean thing to do with your life, to have that measure of fear for who God is and who we are. He's God, we're not. So obey him. And reading scripture will produce in a person that type idea, I believe, is his point. Reading the stories and you see where God saves people, but then you read some, you see where God judges people because they disobeyed and they fell into sin. So David would say, then let that sink in and produce a fear in us to not disobey God. What happens if someone does that? He says, endures forever. Now, that means to last eternally. To last eternally along with God. So here's what I take David as saying. If, if you pay attention to God's word, pay attention to the Bible, actually live it, actually do it, then you will have a certain fear of the Lord. You'll obey him. You'll listen to him. And David says that is your ticket, so to speak, to know that you'll last on into eternity. How so? Because that means a person has repented of their sins through faith in Jesus Christ. They have been born again. They're saved and they're forgiven. And now they live their new life in Christ and they live it out of this sort of respect and fear and reverence for God. David would be saying something like this. The person that that's true about has proven the fact that they will last on Judgment Day. Judgment Day will come out from God and they'll still be standing. Not because of who they were, but because of who Jesus did, what Jesus did for them. But David says, 
if a person has no fear for God, no respect for God, they're probably not in God's word, well, it's a proof that they're probably not born again through Jesus Christ either. They're not going to last on that day of judgment in all eternity. But the fear of the Lord, a person who says, I will have that type of reverence for God, that lasts forever. Then he says in the next phrase, he calls it judgments of God. They are true. And what do they do? He says they're righteous altogether. The end of verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean and during forever. The rules, ESV says rules. I'm going to use the word judgments. So the rules or judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I like the word judgments better than the ESV. It says rules. That's okay. But the word here in Hebrew is more of the picture of a judge that like a literal judge rendering a legal verdict. That was kind of what this word was used for for them. So it's it's legally binding verdicts and judgments that's given out by a person of authority. So I'm going to use the word judgments, like I said. So David says, what does the Bible contain? God's judgments. He's, he's issued uh, guilty and not guilty verdicts. He's issued uh, this and that type legal verdicts because he's the holy judge overall. David says they're contained written for us here. What God says is right and wrong. What God says he accepts and doesn't accept. Who God says he will declare guilty and not guilty. So they're contained in the scriptures. But picture a judge that doesn't judge properly. That judge, we would say, is unjust. They're not carrying out justice. They're perverting justice. I mean, judges are human, right? They're, they're not perfect either. They're, they're human beings. So you're gonna, that's why we have like an appeal system. Because you could go to a court system and say, I don't agree with that judge. I'm going to appeal it and go to this appeals court. And you can work your, as I understand it, I'm not a legal expert, but you can work your way up to the Supreme Court if they'll hear your case. But once the Supreme Court says it, it that's it. It's over. Well, that process, though, means that we even believe some of our judges can make mistakes. They can get it wrong, and so you need to go to another one and maybe have your case heard differently. So picture God as a judge, though, and David says his judgments are here in the Bible. They are never wrong. God never judges unjustly. That's behind this phrase, true. It means trustworthy. They're faithful. God never issues a verdict and then says, I shouldn't have done that, that was wrong. You'll never hear a verdict from God and someone be able to say on judgment day, I think I'll go to an appeals court. God will say, man, I'm it. There is no Supreme Court, it's just God. And all of his judgments are true. But David says they're righteous altogether. There's nothing sinful or wrong with God's judgments. So that's the list of six. I'll run through them again real quickly for summary. David said, let's think about the Bible, all of the Bible. There's a lot of things you can say it is and what it does. And David says in this poem, I'm going to think of it like this. There's aspects of the Bible. One aspect, he said, it's God's instruction, his law. It's his testimony. It's his precepts. It's his commandments for how we're to live and what we're to do. It should produce fear and respect for the Lord. It tells us God's judgments that he's rendered out. Then he gave it some attributes. He said the Bible, which again, God's word in written form, he says, well, it's perfect. It's certain. It's sure. It's right. It's pure, clean, and it's righteous. What does it accomplish for a person? He says, well, it revives the soul. 
makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It gives light to your eyes in a dark world. And it'll endure forever. The person who fears the Lord will endure forever too. And I want to end on this. I just want to quickly run through 10 through 14 to help us see something I love that he says here. So that's kind of the aspects of the Bible. And now he's going to end this poem with, but let me share with you how much we should appreciate the Bible. That's why I said appreciate it and see it as a privilege. Here's how David said he appreciates it. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they, that they could mean just what he just said in verse 9, as in the rules of God or the judgments. I'm going to take it to mean really everything he's just said. Because one of these really means the whole thing. So let's just say it this way. Uh, the Bible or God's word is, more, is to be more desired than gold, he says. Even much fine gold. You've got to get the context for their day. They didn't have dollar bills and cash and money. No Bitcoin, none of that stuff. Their top currency was gold and silver. So what David is saying in our day today would be a picture of the wealthiest person out there and all the money and wealth that they have. And David says here, I would desire God's word more than all of that wealth. That's how valuable it was to David. David say, you couldn't trade it to me for all the wealth of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all these people. No, he says, I have scripture and that is more valuable. He says, it's a sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, or God's word, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So it's verse 10, he says, how much do I appreciate it? I view it as more valuable than any of the stuff that the world could offer me. It's more valuable than that. And then he says, I value it because it warns me as a servant of God before I commit sin. If you look at verse 12, he says, who can discern his errors or sins, we could say. He's being rhetorical to say, it's hard for a sinful person to really judge ourselves the way we should and be honest about ourselves and say, I probably shouldn't do this because that's wrong. David says, well, we have trouble with that. But if I follow God's word, it will tell me this is the error that you're about to fall into. Don't do that. That's the value David saw in it. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So that's David's prayer. He says, God, I want to be innocent before you. I don't want to fall into sin, even accidental sin. What's accidental sin? Well, it's kind of like you still did something wrong, but in the moment you weren't fully aware because you didn't have enough knowledge to maybe understand what you were doing. But David says the Bible will remedy that. You get in God's word and you're going to know. That's what David wants. He says, God, keep me from sin. Keep me from violating you and your standards. So I want to be in your word. And then here's what David says the result should be for him. I will avoid sin. I'll avoid offending God. I'll avoid the sort of hidden sins. I'll avoid presumptuous sins. Those are sins on purpose. We know they're wrong, but we do them anyways. And David says, I'll be blameless and innocent. And all of this is linked to him saying, this is when I follow God's word. I appreciate it. I see it as a privilege. I obey it. I take care to do it. And he ends with, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me say this about verse 14 that I love. Look, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in God's sight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of the heart being what he thinks about. Well, here's why I like what David is saying. 
Because here's a question to answer. How can he do this? How can a person do what David says he wants to happen, have happened to him? What does he want? He wants his speech and his thoughts to be acceptable to God. How can that happen then? He answered it with this whole psalm. By letting your mind and your heart be saturated with, guess what? The Word of God. If you let your heart and mind be just saturated with the Bible, it's just going to come out of you. What you think, what you say, it's going to change how you live. And David says, then now I'm on the right track to be pleasing to God. Not saying things that are offensive to him or in violation. No, because I'm just saturated with the word of God. We all know this intuitively. If you listen to music, it tends to stick with you. There's a song gets stuck in your head. It happens. You've watched a movie a few times. You remember the scenes. But David is kind of saying, if you let the things of the world stick in your head, what's going to come out is you're more worldly. If you let the things of God stick in your head and your heart, the Bible, what's going to come out of you is more godly. It's almost just a simple math equation. Worldly things plus you equals you being worldly. Godly things plus you equals you being godly. It starts, though, with appreciating the Bible for what it is, seeing it as a privilege. I hope that you do this morning. I hope you leave here today with a greater just saying, you know what, I've got to get in the word I've got to see more of a value of God's word so that I can do what David said, be pleasing in God's sight. My life will be acceptable to him. It all starts, though, being acceptable before God isn't just reading the Bible. It's about how Nathan started. It is Christ crucified and risen again from the dead. To first be acceptable before God, a person must be born again, made new from the inside out. How? Through Jesus Christ forgiving them of their sins. Jesus says, if you just believe in him with all your heart, all your faith, that he died, but he rose again, a person is forgiven. He died in their place. So our sins are paid for. They're forgiven. He rose again. We live too. Now, David says, once that person is born again, the question is, how do they live life from that point on pleasing? By keeping it according to God's word. I'm going to have a time where we pray and think and Bruce and his people will come. And as I pray, I just ask that you ask God to reveal to your own heart, Lord, what are areas where I am just not valuing the Bible like I should? I've put other things ahead of the time I could give to just take it in a little bit more, appreciate it a little bit more, and live it a little bit more. Let me pray, and as I do, Bruce and them will come. Father, thank you for your written word. And I know that I need to hear this as well as everyone else, but I need to see it as a privilege. There are so many people in languages still that don't have a copy of it. And I ask for them that you will just bless the efforts of all these translators, uh, bless the efforts of people like the Gideons getting God's word out everywhere. And I ask that starting here with each of us, you would give us a greater appreciation to see your Bible as a privilege to have. That we would go to it for our questions. We'd go to it for what we need to think about and how to live. Help us to understand it more, Lord, so we can live pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.